the story I just read, uh, as well as its surrounding context, but the story specifically, maybe second only to the parable of the prodigal son, is Jesus' most famous story. It's ubiquitous in our culture. Uh, You might be interested to know that a web search for the Good Samaritan turns up 1.6 million news stories. Uh, Even on the way over here tonight, on the radio, I heard there's a new movie out called Samaritan. And guess who the character named Samaritan is? He's a superhero, right? So this is the good guy. In fact, uh, the word Samaritan has earned a second entry in most dictionaries. So if I said, you know, my neighbor is a Samaritan, I might be saying the guy who lives next to me is from Samaria, or I might be saying he's a really nice guy who's generous in helping those in need. So everybody in our culture knows this story. We're familiar with it, or at least we think we are, right? But is there more to this parable that we don't understand? And even a better question is, do we know the context in which this story is told? And how does that affect our interpretation of it? Well, as we answer these questions tonight, we'll see that the story we call the Good Samaritan comes as very bad news to those who hear it. And that will be our discovery tonight as we explore this passage in three sections, which you can see there on your notes sheet beginning in verse 25 with a legal confrontation. We read, And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, just so we can understand exactly what's going on here, there are a couple things we need to sort out. First, what does Luke mean when he says lawyer? I assume uh, what we think of when we hear that word uh, is an attorney, someone who practices Uh, and is an expert in some section of the U.S. Penal Code. But that's not what Luke is talking about here at all. This man was uh, not someone who studied American law to practice in court, but rather he had spent an enormous amount of time studying the Mosaic Law. So maybe it would be better for our purposes to call him the OT prof, or the Bible scholar, or the theologian. The second thing we need to sort out here is Uh, the nature of his question. Luke says that he stands up and asks Jesus this question in order to test him. Now, that word test can be taken neutrally or very negatively. So, for example, in Matthew 22, the Pharisees test Jesus in order to entangle him in his words. And Jesus detects their malice, Matthew tells us. But Luke doesn't indicate anything like that here. Jesus seems to consider this man as a curious individual, not a hostile enemy sent by a hostile group. Now, that doesn't mean he's actually interested in Jesus' answer to his question. In one sense, he's not seeking information. He thinks he already knows the right answer, but he's testing Jesus to see if uh, Jesus actually knows the right answer. This up-and-coming prophet who has been teaching the crowds, He wants to test his theological mettle, so to speak. So he stands up and asks, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now here our five sola instincts might kick in and go something like, wait, what what is this guy doing? You know, did he say do? Where's his theology of grace? But before we bring the hammer down on this guy, we, we have to pay careful attention to what he's actually asking. Is he asking about salvation? No, 
He's asking about eternal life and heaven, the kingdom of God. That's a very different question. He's not like the passage we just read in Acts 2, when after they're convicted of their sin and cut to the heart, the people ask what they might do to be saved. Or the jailer in Acts 16 asking, what must I do to be saved? If that were the case, Jesus would have a different answer. But this man is asking about the law and its demands and its rewards. How can I get into the kingdom of God through my own efforts? That's his question. And in that context, doing is appropriate. Heaven must be earned. So we shouldn't be critical of the lawyer for his question. Jesus wasn't. He didn't reject the premise of his question. Instead, he answered him. What is written in the law? How do you read it? He's essentially saying, you're an OT scholar. What's your professional opinion? And the man answers, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. The theologian gives the exact same answer that Jesus would have given if he had decided to just simply answer the question. It's the answer Jesus gives in a very similar situation with another man who asks him what the most important commands are. And it's a combination of two Old Testament passages. The part about loving God comes from Deuteronomy 6, verse 5. It's a demand to be comprehensively devoted to the Lord with every faculty of your being. And the part about loving neighbor comes from Leviticus 19, verse 18, which says this. You must not take vengeance or bear a grudge against any of your people, but you must love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So the requirement here is to show your neighbor the same kind of compassion and concern that you naturally have for yourself and your own well-being. And again, this is the same answer Jesus would have given. That's why Jesus tells him, you've answered correctly. Now go and do it, right? You're asking, what do I have to do to earn eternal life? That's what you have to do. Go and do it. He is applying his own Old Testament quotation from Leviticus 18.5 to this situation. Leviticus 18.5 says, You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. So Jesus is saying, if you want to enter the kingdom of God through your own efforts, that's the way you've got to do it. Love God completely. Love your neighbor as yourself. Okay, so the man has his answer. Conversation over, right? Well, not quite yet. In verse 29, Luke writes, But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, Who is my neighbor? He's trying to save face here. Jesus is handling this confrontation all too well. Remember, the lawyer is the one trying to test Jesus, but Jesus has gained the upper hand by turning the question back on him. So, in order to regain the initiative, he asks Jesus another theological question question. Who is my neighbor? In terms of legal scholarship, this is a great question. The terms have to be defined. After all, if you're trying to obey this command, you need to know who your neighbor is, who you're supposed to love. And as with his first question, it's likely the theologian already had the right answer in his mind, what he thought was the right answer, at least. He's checking to see if Jesus will say the same thing. So what was the answer he was looking for? Well, simple. It's, it's right there in the, the passage he just quoted. In the Pentateuch, your neighbor was your fellow Israelite. That's who you were supposed to love. That's who you were not supposed to take vengeance on. It's very clear. But is that what Jesus is going to say? Well, as we move into our second point, a surprising story 
we read Jesus' rather lengthy introduction to what will be his second counter-question. He says this, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. So, there's this traveling somebody, and he just has the bad luck to find himself the victim of a brutal mugging in which he is stolen from, beaten, stripped, and left in critical condition on the side of the road. That's the basic picture we need to grasp. That's the problem that presents itself itself in this story. But notice we're not told who this man is. In fact, we're told that he's stripped of his clothing because clothing was one way to identify people in the first century. So not only do we not know who he is, but Jesus makes sure to include this detail to let us know that the point is exactly that. We don't need to know who he is. He's simply a man reduced to a desperate state of need. He could be anybody. Jesus's story continues. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. Now when Jesus starts this next sentence, the audience has you know, a burst of hope. A priest is coming. He's going to help this injured man. But as soon as that hope arises, it's dashed. The priest passes by. Even though he sees him, he, he does nothing to help. And the same pattern is repeated with the Levite. These holy men, almost word for word, the repetition heightens the sense of drama. Why is nobody helping this injured man? Now, in the commentaries, there's been a lot of speculation about, you know, why did these guys not help the injured man? What what excuse could the priest and the Levite give for failing to help this stranded stranger? But even if we could answer that question, it wouldn't matter. It's beside the point. Jesus simply wants us to see that they both failed to help the man in his time of need. So by the end of verse 32, the audience is on the edge of their seats, wondering who is going to come to the rescue. These kinds of teaching stories often come in threes, right? The three little pigs, things like that. Of course, that's one from our own culture. But two two noble characters have already passed this man by. So whoever the third one is, he's got to be the hero of the story. So who's it going to be? Is God going to send an angel? Maybe a a regular old Israelite is going to come along and save the day? Well, let's read on. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. And as soon as Jesus says the words, a Samaritan, which Luke puts in the very first place in the sentence, the crowd begins to boo and hiss, maybe throw tomatoes or something like that. With our cultural definition of Samaritan, we don't get the shock value of this. As someone we define as exceedingly good, and as people who have heard this story many, many times, we know that as soon as the Samaritan comes, things are going to get better for this guy. But the Jews of Jesus' day had a very, very different idea of who Samaritans were, what they were like. I'm sure you've heard many times that the Samaritans hated the Jews and the Jews hated the Samaritans. They thought the worst of each other. So, when Jesus' audience hears that the Samaritan's coming, they probably think things are going to get worse for this guy. Now, the Samaritan's probably going to go over to the ditch and make sure there's nothing left to steal. Or maybe if he sees he's still alive, maybe he'll finish him off. That's what Samaritans do. 
But an incredible twist ending begins at the end of verse 33. When the Samaritan saw him, he had compassion. The Samaritan has sympathy on the victim. And that sympathy drives him to loving action. Against all expectations, Jesus picks as the hero of his story about love of neighbor, a Samaritan. And he certainly acts heroically. Look at everything he does in verses 34 and 35. The Samaritan administers first aid. He gives up his ride. He pays for the man's hotel room. He serves as his bedside nurse. He pays for him to stay in the hotel even for a couple extra weeks. And he even promises the manager to pay for any room service or spa treatments that the man might ask for during his stay. All of this is a display of selfless love that costs the man time and effort and money and risk. But he considers the injured man more highly than himself. And again, the fact that all of this is being done by a Samaritan is simply unfathomable to Jesus' Jewish audience. I can't overstate that enough. It's really difficult for us to understand that living where we do. Right? I guess maybe the closest thing I could compare it to for our cultural milieu would be like someone going into Auschwitz and telling the Jewish prisoners there who've been starved and beaten and are about to be executed, telling them the story of, of, of the good SS officer, the, the Nazi who had compassion. Right? Those things just don't go together. So Jesus is finished telling his story, and we can imagine the crowd, including the man who asked him the question, just in shock, jaws on the floor. And this was Jesus' setup for his second counter-question. He says, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And then the lawyer responds correctly. He says, the one who showed him mercy. So for a second time, Jesus doesn't answer the man's question. Who is my neighbor is what he asked. But Jesus shifts the neighbor from the position of object, right? The one who receives love. That's what the lawyer asked about. Jesus changes it. Now the neighbor is the subject, the one who's showing love. Who acted like a neighbor, Jesus asks. So the story of the merciful Samaritan explores the meaning of love, not of neighbor. Jesus is telling his questioner, don't worry about who your neighbor is. Worry about being a neighbor. That's what you need to be concerned about. That's what we see explicitly in verse 37. Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. Jesus has shown this expert in the law a side of the law of love that he hadn't considered. He shifts his concern from the identity of neighbor to the kind of love that must be shown and then tells the scholar with this new understanding of love, love without boundaries, begin expressing that in your life. If you want to earn eternal life, You must emulate the compassion exemplified by the Samaritan. That's the function of this parable, to show what love is and to demand it. The whole passage is about doing. The theologian asks what he should do. The parable focuses on all of the merciful actions that the Samaritan did. And Jesus' final word is to do likewise. But Luke doesn't tell us how the scholar responded to that demand. The story ends. Luke changes scenery and goes right into a different story. So Jesus' command is left floating. And in that way, it lands on us. So how will we we respond to Jesus' command to go and show selfless love like this Samaritan has? 
Well, to close, I'll suggest that our response should be threefold. First, despair. Second, faith. And third, obedience. Despair, and then faith, and then obedience, which you could almost put this way. Guilt, grace, gratitude. So first, despair. Whenever we hear the demands of the law, we are driven to despair. We realize how short we truly fall, right? The perfection of God's righteous standard reveals the depths of our imperfection. I mean, let's take this story as an example, right? Do you love perfectly? Do you take every opportunity you have to help someone in need, no matter what the cost is to you personally? Can you say that you've never belittled or insulted or held a grudge against anyone? Are you instead always patient and kind and generous and gentle and friendly? The answer to all of these questions is a definite no. We fall far short of keeping the command to love our neighbor as ourselves. But by God's grace, this realization leads us to Christ. As we grasp the greatness of our sin and misery, we realize that our only hope is in him. If you want to see what love looks like, what it looks like to keep the second great commandment, look no further than the Lord Jesus Christ. Who acts like a Samaritan more than the one who told the story? Now, just to be clear, Jesus didn't tell this story about himself. It's not an allegory. Jesus isn't the good Samaritan in that sense. But in the rest of the gospel, Luke shows us all the clear connections between Jesus and the Samaritan. Jesus saves us from death. He heals us. He pays our debts. All of these ways, he's like the Good Samaritan. And Jesus is even better because he helps those not just whom he happened to to come across as he was walking down the road, but Jesus says in chapter 19 of Luke's gospel, his entire mission in coming to earth was to seek and save the lost. Jesus sought us out by the side of the road, laying in the ditch, half dead, completely dead, in fact, in our sins and trespasses. He sought us out to save us. And he did that in large part by obeying the commandments that we could never hope to obey. So, the law is kept for us by Christ. Our despair is answered by our faith in him, and we've received his righteous record. So, does that mean we can disregard the force of this parable? Can we walk out of here tonight telling ourselves that, you know, the, the words of Jesus in verse 37, go and do likewise, that was for that legalistic, you know, Old Testament professor. That's not for me. You know, I can ignore that part. By no means. Because not only does Jesus exemplify selfless love, he calls all those who trust in him to love selflessly as well. Though we're not under the law of love as a path to eternal life, It's not something we have to do to earn heaven, as the man was asking about. The law of love remains the path we walk as Christian believers. As the Holy Spirit transforms us into the image of him who loved perfectly, he empowers us to love our neighbor as ourselves. Not perfectly, but truly and by God's grace. This comes back to the way Jesus shifted the terms of the discussion with the lawyer. Remember, he didn't answer his question, who is my neighbor? By focusing on what it means to love rather than who my neighbor is, Jesus was letting this man know that he did not need information. He needed transformation. 
And that's what we all need. Jesus has made it clear that we cannot restrict the word neighbor, right? If you want to know who you're supposed to love, it's anyone you come across. But this is what it looks like to love, selflessly, without distinction or bias, right? Everyone in your path, give of yourself, your time, your money, your effort, risk even, your own safety to love others. That's the standard that Jesus holds out. But he's also fulfilled the obligations of that law for us. And he's now working in us by his spirit to transform us into those who love our neighbor. So, as we go out tonight, don't ignore the command in verse 37. Yes, be encouraged by what the Lord has done for us, keeping the command for us, releasing us from the curse of the law. And at the same time, let us resolve to obey Jesus' lofty demand in verse 37, to go and do likewise as he empowers us by his spirit and as he transforms us from the inside out so that that inner transformation flows out in action that's not concerned with self but concerned with other. Let's pray.